Our scripture this morning is from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let us today hear the word of the Lord. Judging by the number of gray-ish hairs in this room, I'm going to be real careful. I'm, I'm careful, Josh. I think it's fair to say that it's harder to maintain the illusion that we are in control of the circumstances of our life the older you get. Do you agree with that? It's harder to maintain that illusion. The older you get, the harder it is to keep convincing yourself that you're in control of the circumstances of your life. You know, when, when we're young, we feel invincible. The world's before you, so choose your major, choose your employer, craft your resume. You, you've got all these opportunities. In fact, there's so many, that's kind of overwhelming in and of itself. But bottom line, when you're young, you feel like life is whatever you want to make it. But then the older you get, as the years add up, so too do these experiences, especially experiences of suffering, that come in without warning, no, no advance notice usually, and remind us that we're not in control. No matter how much money you have, connections you have, or power you think you have. So a, maybe a family member suddenly dies. Or a friend betrays you. Or, or your, your boss lays you off right before you qualify for Medicare. <laughs> or as Chris was praying earlier, maybe a, a chronic illness after you've been a paradigm of health for five decades begins to ravage your body or, or maybe it starts to make your spouse's mind crumble and you feel like the person you're married to is, has just gone. Maybe waves of depression. That's a real experience. Or seeing injustice in the world around you. It, it, it threatens to sabotage your faith in God and you didn't see that coming. Whatever it is, friend, whatever unexpected suffering has come your way or will come your way, it's good to remember in all those situations that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. There's, nothing's gonna come at you even, even when it jumps you, okay? 
that's jumped God. He doesn't get jumped. Everything good or bad that comes to us passes first through his hands. We have to remember that. We also have to remember whenever unexpected circumstance comes your way, you didn't see it coming, that in every situation, you have a choice to make. And that's this. How will you respond to that circumstance? Okay, so here's what, I, here's what I'm saying. At risk of missing, we don't want to miss the obvious here. Can we control or choose which circumstances come our way? No. No, certainly not entirely. But can you decide, and is this a very real choice and decision you will make whether you are thinking about it or not, how you will respond to whatever comes your way? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. We don't get to choose our circumstances. We do get to decide how we will respond to our circumstances. And James, we've, we've seen this for five chapters now. He just keeps teaching us how as Christians we should respond to all sorts of specific situations. Okay, suffering included. Because he wants us to remember that genuine faith in Jesus isn't a passive thing. It's not just, well, yeah, I know this is true, but I got in my head. That's great. No, genuine faith is an active thing. What's, what was the title of our series? A faith that works, right? A trust that, that obeys the Lord, no matter what's coming at us, by responding his way to that circumstance instead of our own way. And as we get to the very end of this book, James wraps up, he concludes with with two final exhortations that I think illustrate how we should respond to whatever circumstance comes our way next. What, What should be the essence of our response? We've looked at lots of specific circumstances, lots of specific responses. Are there any big categories that we can take? How should we respond into every situation that comes at us? I think there are. And I describe it this way. In every situation, friend, we need to turn in two directions. So listen carefully. No matter what comes at us, we need to turn toward God and we need to turn toward his people. Turn to God and and turn toward his people. That's what wisdom does in whatever situation comes at us especially in suffering, but I would say and argue that's not what we naturally tend to do, right? What, what do we naturally tend to do when we're suffering? Do, do we turn upward to God, outward to his people? No, which way do we turn? Inward. In all kinds of ways. And James says in these final verses, we need to do the exact opposite. We need to turn upward to God. We need to turn outward to his people. And we need to do it for this reason. Listen, we turn toward God and one another in all circumstances. Why, James? Because God accomplishes his saving work through the prayers and pursuit of his people. That's the reason we make those two turns. Why, why in all circumstances do we turn toward God and toward his people? Turn toward God, turn his people. Over, 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 over again. Till he gets us home. 
Because God accomplishes his saving work through the prayers and pursuit of his people. And so that means that no matter what is going on in your life right now, there are two critical ways you need to respond to that circumstance. Okay, and these are going to be the two points of this message. We need to pray together with confidence, returning toward the Lord together, and we need to pursue one another with diligence. That's how we make those two turns. We pray together with confidence. We pursue one another with diligence. Let's briefly look at each one of those. We're going to spend, uh, the first one won't be brief. The second one will. We're going to linger more on the first one. So first, we need to pray together with confidence, no matter what's going on. Look at verse 13, chapter 5. This is really important. James, as it were, he, he gets started by grabbing, speaking to, the bookends of human experience. So, if you're suffering, if life is really hard, what does he say in verse 13 you should do? You should pray. You should pray. You should turn to God and talk with him about what's happening. If you're suffering, what does that look like? Pouring out your sorrows, pleading God's promises, trusting God's faithfulness. Don't don't turn inward when you're suffering into stony silence. Turn upward to God with a cry for help. But, But how about if life is going really well? Maybe, maybe things are really good. Maybe part of you feels bad even saying that. You think, well, I guess to relate to people and be humble and all that good stuff, I should be suffering somewhere. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. What should you do then? If you're experiencing prosperity on every side, look back at verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Life going well? Let him sing praise. Open your mouth, James says, right? Loosen your tongue and and give all the credit and glory and honor for all that prosperity back to God in a prayer of thanksgiving. He's grabbing the bookends. And and, and what's his main point in all of them? Whether things are going really badly or really well or somewhere in between, what do we need to do? We need to look to the Lord. We need need to turn toward the Lord. We we need to refuse to treat God like a 911 dispatcher. How do we treat them? Hey, I love those people. I am so grateful they're there if I ever need to call them. Don't don't treat God that way. Why why not? Because the absence of prayers and of Thanksgiving and praise and your prosperity, the absence of that, will shrivel your soul, friend, no less than the absence of prayers of intercession in adversity. Both are equally necessary because we're made to live all of life in relationship to God, aren't we? He's our creator and he's our savior. He's the one from whom all blessings flow. So whether we are waiting to receive his blessings or whether we have already received them, what do we do? We look to God. We turn back toward God. James is reminding us in verse 13 as he begins to lay in the plane of the letter that in every situation, no matter what's coming at us, our entire life should be marked by this continual turning back to God in prayer. All kinds of prayers. You know, the Lord has been using 
um, our youngest son, Tyler, to really provoke my wife, Eliza, and me in this regard. We were talking about him this week and his example. When, when obedience is hard or when he's really frightened about something, he, he has started running to one of us and saying, hey, mom, hey, dad, can we please pray? And it's provoking. I'm grateful for this, buddy. Because so many of those are situations where as his dad, I'm thinking, Tyler, really the lightning's going to strike? Do, do, we, do we have to pray? We don't need to pray about everything, Tyler. I mean, this isn't a big deal, right? Oh. That's shameful. Lord, help me. Because he's turning toward God, right? And you know what else he does? When something really exciting happens in his life, you know where this is going, right? And I get home from work, and that door opens, and I've got my briefcase and all my stuff, and it's just like, boosh! You know, you gotta, gotta watch how he tackles you. But, but Tyler, he'll, he'll just blurt out, I mean, this, this was this week, Dad, 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 I got new football cards, and one of them is a 2020 James Conner. I'm so excited! <laughs> You know, you're just trying to like, okay, data point, reorientate. But what is he doing? Whether his life is hard, he's suffering, or he's cheerful. He's turning toward me because I'm his dad. Friends, Jesus said in Luke 18, 17, that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Remember that. Remember that because genuine humble faith seizes every opportunity to, to relate back to God, to turn toward God in prayer. And, and having established that principle, it's just in verse 13, James, he pivots in 14 to then linger on what does turning toward God look like in the specific situation where you're physically sick? So what does he say? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. I, I wonder if in context, that strikes you as a little strange. I mean, it almost struck me as strange, and, and I'm an elder, right? I mean, James has just finished saying what? That no matter what's going on around you, you need to turn toward God in prayer. Intercession, praise, but, but turn toward God. So why would he say, but if you're sick, don't call upon God, dial up the elders. You following? Do, do, do the elders, I mean, do the pastors in a church possess some sort of special power to heal? Or to access God's ear that that you as a, a poor, pitiful, below my pulpit Christian don't have access to? Well, I don't think so. In fact, I know not. I think James is encouraging the sick to, to call the elders for two reasons. Okay, first, as the great shepherd, God calls us as pastors to express his care for his people in a very personal way. And that's a privilege. 
There are times that I've been able to go and pray for someone, and, and my words sound so weak in my ears. You ever experienced this, Chris? You know, so inadequate. And then later on, you get a note or a phone call, and Pastor, thank you. I was just so aware of God's care for me in that moment. Thinking, like, what, what the heck? How did that happen? That's God's kindness. That's a privilege. But I think the second reason James encourages the sick to call the elders is even more important. And that's this, that that one of the most important ways that we turn toward God is by turning toward his people. So think about this with me. If you're a Christian, you are part of God's royal priesthood. Okay, you are, as Paul says, an ambassador for Christ. And, And Jesus has commissioned all of us, right? Not just pastors to speak and care and encourage and correct and serve and strengthen and provide and, and pray for one another on his behalf. All of us. So, so asking the elders to pray, in other words, isn't an alternative to the command in verse 13 to turn toward the Lord in all circumstances. It is, in fact, a practical way that we obey the command in verse 13. We turn to one another And so doing, we're turning to the Lord. Or as as author Ed Welch says, we say, I love this. We say help to God by saying help to his people. Help to God by saying help to his people. And, And notice what James tells the elders to do. Verse 14, they should pray over the one who is sick, anointing him with oil or her with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, Two clarifying remarks are in order here. Lest we get hung up on a relatively minor point in this passage, okay? First, that the Bible is filled with examples of Jesus and his followers healing all kinds of people without using oil. Filled with those examples. Which suggests that anointing with oil is a helpful practice, can be a helpful practice, but isn't required in all circumstances where we are praying for physical healing, okay? And second, it's important we understand that that oil here is symbolic, not sacramental. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that, that the oil in and of itself doesn't have in itself any power to heal anyone. I don't have a special vial in my office that if I FedExed it to you and you dabbed yourself with it, becomes this kind of magic charm <laughs> by which you're healed, okay? It's, it's symbolic, not sacramental. It's a physical symbol of the favor and blessing of God. And so if you think back to the Old Testament, akin to its use there, oil reminds a sick believer that they have been consecrated or, or set apart by the Holy Spirit as a beloved child of God, which is why James says what? Anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Notice that. So what does he say will happen when the elders pray over the one who is sick? Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Friend, do not discount the power of prayer for physical healing. 
Don't do that. Does Jesus care first and foremost about the eternal health of your soul? Absolutely. But you know what else he did when he walked on this earth? He spent a lot of time caring for our physical bodies that he made. And he's still in the business of healing our physical diseases today through the prayers of his people, even as we wait for him to bring complete and total healing when we see him face to face in glory. And we have to remember that that our prayers, they never override his sovereign will, right? There are times that we pray for healing and for reasons we don't understand, I don't understand, God chooses not to heal. And, And when that happens, friend, you should not conclude or assume that God didn't heal because either you, if you were asking for prayer, or the people that were praying for you, lacked enough faith. Don't assume that, okay? Because our faith isn't sovereign. Who's sovereign? God is. Faith isn't something by which we twist the arm of a reluctant God. Faith is an act of dependence and trust in what we do not have that he does. And when God chooses to heal, he's purposed to do it through faith-filled prayer. He's ordained in his sovereignty. That means, which means faith-filled prayer is absolutely necessary. I love how Dan McCartney helps us understand why this faith in our prayer is so important. He writes, faith is that which connects a person to God and characterizes a relationship with God. It is this relationship to the healing God, notice that, that secures answer to prayer. Your faith, in other words, doesn't heal anybody. Your prayer of faith doesn't heal anybody. Who heals people? God heals people. And yet, in his sovereign power, how has the healing God ordained, committed himself to, promised he will work his healing? There's a means. Through the faith-filled prayers of his people. So think, think of it this way, okay? If you're looking at verse 15, so important, friends, this will save you from a thousand pitfalls. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick strengthens our eagerness to pray and to ask for prayer. And the Lord will raise him up, keeps us humble as we do so. Mindful that God is ultimately the one who heals in his time and his way and by his power. And I praise God that that healing activity, that raising up activity of the Lord isn't limited to our physical illnesses. Notice that. The end of verse 15, what does James say? And if he, the sick person, has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now notice that's an if, not a because. James doesn't assume disobedience of God's commands is the underlying cause of every physical illness. Do not go there and do not yoke the men and women around you with that slavery. But James does recognize 
the collective witness of scripture that, that in many situations, what's in play? Both physical illnesses and spiritual troubles, right? All at the same time. I mean, how many of us in this life are ever like, now I'm in the, I only have physical issues and now I'm in the, all my problems are spiritual. No, right? We're, we're embodied souls. We almost always have both going on. And so we need the Lord to heal our bodies and we need the Lord to restore our souls, right? To forgive and, and cleanse us from the sin that so easily entangles. And, and the good news is, friend, you don't have to parse all that out. <laughs> Nor should you ultimately try because our Heavenly Father knows both are in play and he's eager to deliver us through the power of prayer if we're willing to ask for it. Look at verse 16. What's the bottom line? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed body and soul. And, and so whether you are physically weak, spiritually wayward, or some combination of both, what do we need to do, friend? In every circumstance, we need to turn toward God by turning toward one another, by asking for prayer, confessing our sins, where the Spirit grants the gift of conviction with confidence that as our brothers and sisters in Christ pray for us, the Lord Jesus will be faithful to heal us. And you know, I think this is so sad. So often we are reluctant to confess our sins, aren't we? Or, or just even reluctant to ask for prayer in the greatest struggles of life. So, so yeah, you know, how can you pray? Well, let's see. What sort of benign, generic, non-personal, transparent, humble thing could I share? Um, you know, I, I, I kind of worry about how I'll provide for my kids' college one day. So could you just sort of pray for that? Um, my my great-grandmother, I saw on Facebook, she has a, a bad toe. Could you pray for that? I'm not mocking those things, okay? Too much. <laughs> but what, what's my point? When was the last time you asked somebody else for prayer for something that really matters? Like power to conquer sexual lust or greed or selfishness or, or laziness or self-pity or, or a persistent lack of love for the people around you who don't know Jesus that's causing you to keep your mouth shut and put your garage door down and mind your own business. We need, we need to confess those sins, friends. Because verse 16 is a precious, precious promise. If, if you are willing to confess your sins, to share your illnesses and weaknesses, body and soul, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and let them pray for you, God says he'll use their prayers to heal you. That's a precious promise. And that should compel us to speak up and be humble and ask for prayer. And when we do pray, let's remember to pray with great confidence. Look back at verse 16. What does James say? 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I think we doubt that. Because there are many times, even as a pastor, you know, the illustration I mentioned earlier, right? Where you're praying for somebody for physical healing, spiritual healing. And, and part of you is praying, but you ever have this experience where part of you is listening to yourself pray? And that other part of you is saying, dude, that is such a lame prayer. <laughs> like, Lord, be with them. Duh, he's already with them. Like, help them. They knew that. You know, you're just kind of talking and then you just, uh, I'm out of stuff to say. Amen. Why did they even bother asking me? They, they should have made an appointment with a pastor. He would have known what to say. Well, maybe they should make an appointment with a pastor. But, but what's James' point here? It's the prayer of a righteous person that has great power as it's working. And because he knows we will tend to doubt that or think everybody else but us is righteous, who does he marshal as exhibit A? The prophet Elijah, right? In 1 Kings 17 and 18, where, where you've got the nation of Israel during the reign of Ahab, plagued by pagan idolatry from the top down. And Elijah prays, Lord, would you make it not rain so that you could get the attention of the hearts of your people and bring them back to you? And then there's this climactic episode in 18, where all the prophets of Baal come to Mount Carmel. You have this battle back and forth between them and the people finally admit the Lord, he is God. Yeah. <laughs> and then what's Elijah do? He immediately goes and prays right away and it begins to pour. To which you say, of course it did, Matthew. He was Elijah. He had a red phone line to God in a secret compartment. And I'm just little old me over here asking the Lord to intervene in my child's body or my friend's heart. How many people are there in the world? Nearly 8 billion? I mean, I, I probably have as good a chance of that prayer I prayed while spilling coffee on my way to work, reaching the ears of God, as I did last night when I tried to get a real person to answer when I called my credit card company. Friend, in verse 17, James cares for you. The Lord cares for you. When you have that thought, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Yeah, he was a prophet, but he had a nature like yours. For real? Yeah. <laughs> what kind of nature is that? Remember, what sort of prayer does James say? It has great power in verse 16. It's the prayer of a righteous person. Not the prayer of a super saint or a pastor. It's, it's the prayer of any man or woman, no matter how young or old, who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ to make you right with God. And you are following Jesus accordingly 
living out that profession. That's the righteous person. That's the prayer that the Lord Jesus says has great power. Not little power, Christian. Great power as it's working. So, so when someone confesses a spiritual struggle to you or tells you about a, you know, a physical illness and you immediately feel completely inadequate and, and you think, man, I really wish there was something I could do to help them right now. You know, whether it's in conversation after the service on Sunday morning or you're standing in the sheets parking lot at nine o'clock at night. Christian, you have an opportunity in that moment to exercise the formidable weapon of prayer. The, the Lord has entrusted that to you. And, and, and to ignore that would, would be as crazy as, a, you know, a, a knight in the Middle Ages or something going into battle and he, he's got you know, one of those crazy glowing swords from the Lord of the Rings that just sort of decks people. And, and he's like, man, I, I just, I don't have a weapon. Like, I, I'm dead meat. Oh my goodness. And he's got it the whole time. Dude, pull it out. You have it. That's what prayer is, friends. It's not a backup option. It's not a second-class response. It's not, well, because I'm not trained in counseling, I don't really know what to say, so could we pray? Maybe? Nonsense! <laughs> Praying for each other is the most loving thing we do for each other, church. Amen. You realize that? Because when you're praying, you are calling upon the name of the God that that brother or sister ultimately needs. They don't need you. You, you have no power to do for them, their body or their soul, what their body or soul needs. Guess who has that power? Jesus does. And so you pray, you call upon the one who has it as a loud statement that says, you know what, Williams, I agree right now. I am utterly inadequate and helpless. And forgive me, Lord, for thinking I had anything to offer. So let's call upon the name of the one who does together. Because he's eager to act. And he's promised to act. So let's be faithful to confidently ask and faithful to confidently pray. In all circumstances, we turn toward God and one another by praying together with confidence. But here's, here's the second way, this will be briefer, that the Lord accomplishes his saving work through us. And, and this is a way, friends, that involves prayer, okay? But it's not limited to prayer. And that's this, we pursue one another with diligence. We pray together with confidence. We pursue one another with diligence. So this, this exhortation, final comment from James, instruction, command, verses 19 and 20, is a fitting conclusion to a letter that has been urging us in practical ways to obey God's commands. Because I think, James knows this, it would be very easy to stay focused after five chapters on how we are doing, Right? Am I being faithful? How do I need to grow in obeying God as a Christian? And James reminds us at the very end that our responsibility as Christians goes further than that. In other words, you have a responsibility, Christian, to not only make sure that you are obeying and walking in the path of God's commands, which we've seen all throughout this letter, but God has given you a responsibility 
to make sure, so far as it depends upon you, that all the other believers around you are doing the exact same thing. So think about this. If a fellow believer starts drifting away from living what they claim to believe, what should you do? Thoughts and prayers? That's a bit of a trick question. What was point one? Confidently pray, right? I told you prayer was part of this second point. Yeah, we should pray, but what else should we do? You should go after them. You should do everything in your power to convince and help them to turn back to following Jesus. Why? Because whether or not somebody follows Jesus isn't a religious preference issue. Well, I used to like Mickey D's, but you know, now I'm more of a Chick-fil-A guy. No, whether or not we follow Jesus is a life and death issue. Verse 20, look there. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's big stuff, okay? You know, we like to think of our relationship with God as what? A purely private thing, don't we? Me and Jesus. So, so the choices I'm making to obey God's word or disobey God's word are, are between God and me. So love me if I ask for it, but otherwise, mind your own business. I got it. You ever recognize that thought in your head? You need to know right now that is utter folly, friend. Completely foolish. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful. We, we, we desperately need to love one another enough. Notice how I said that. To love one another enough to be willing to ask hard questions and say hard things. So if you see me walking in clear disobedience to the word of God, please don't stop with praying for me. Pray for me, but come talk to me too. Sit me down if necessary. Okay? And speak the truth in love. To tell me where I'm wandering. Tell, tell me where I'm straying. Urge me to turn back to Jesus and lovingly remind me of the consequences if I don't do that. Don't, in other words, don't stand far off when you see a fellow Christian, especially a fellow member of your church, struggling in the name of, well, I don't want to upset them. And you know, if I say something, I could break our relationship. Yeah, you could. But friend, isn't there something more important than whether that relationship continues? Would you agree that, that the eternal health of their soul and where they spend all eternity matters more than what they think of you right now. That's how love thinks. That's what love does. Be gentle, be patient, but pursue them, friend. Remember, though you live in a world that says the worst thing you can ever do to somebody is offend them, God says the worst thing you can ever do to someone is shrug off an opportunity to save their soul from death. And that's why in our church covenant, if you become a covenant member of this church, we make promises to each other. What are those promises? Example, to exercise affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And 
to diligently exhort, encourage, and admonish one another with a spirit of gentleness and meekness in the battle against sin. That's important because our eternal destiny is on the line. So, so if you don't see a fellow member for a few months on a Sunday, I want you to call them. Obeying this command means we, we pursue them, right? We, we find out what's going on. And if somebody's struggling spiritually, we, we set aside time to, to sit with them. Don't say, well, we'll get back to that kind of pursuing one another when COVID's over. <laughs> I mean, yeah, honor social distancing, but, but I would say we need the comfort and correction of biblical community all the more now than ever because COVID tends to isolate us. And guess what thrives in isolation? Sin. So I don't know if your pursuit will be well-received. James doesn't promise us that. I'm not promising you that. But friend, please don't assume a negative reaction when you lovingly go after a fellow Christian means you did something wrong. You ever helped a car stuck in a muddy ditch to get back out on the road? What'd you look like afterward? Covered in mud. Helping a trapped Christian in sin is messy work. But it is the test of true love. And it is the test of whether we are following Jesus and helping one another follow Jesus for the comforts and conveniences of this life or for eternity. It's worth it when it's hard, friend, because God is mighty to save and he delights to accomplish the saving work through the prayers and pursuit of his people. That's James' point. So I want to leave you with two questions to think about this week as we finish this whole book, okay? It's where we started. Whatever situation you find yourself right now, how can you turn toward God? Okay, do you, do you need to pray for his help in the midst of suffering? Maybe you need to, to thank him for blessings that he's given you. Maybe you need to turn toward him by turning toward other people, as James urged us to, by asking them to pray for you, physically or spiritually. And second, whatever situation you find yourself, how can you turn toward God's people? They're related, but ask the Lord to show you, is there a relationship I need to get more involved in with a fellow believer so, th so that I can help them persevere in following Jesus and not turn away? We, we need to keep turning toward God, church, and we need to keep turning toward one another over and over and over again until Jesus brings us home. May the Lord make us a church that's faithful to pray together with confidence and to pursue one another with diligence because God accomplishes his saving work through the prayers and the pursuit of his people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you for holy courage right now. We pray you would help us during the week and even this morning to do what we are about to pray for through this song. Give us confidence to pray. Give us courage to pursue. In all of it, 
in both responses, turning toward you, turning toward one another. Help us in your name. Amen.